This morning, let's go to Galatians chapter 5, verse number 17. Galatians 5, verse number 17. This is the second half of what I started last week on this verse. I'm just going to give this one a little title too. You are outnumbered. Alright, that would be our little title for today. You are outnumbered. It says in Galatians 5, verse 17, For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, for these two are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. Heavenly Father, again, we come before you as your children to sit at your feet, that we may be taught. We look upon you, Lord, and we see your great love for us, and we thank you for that. We know that you're very active in our lives. We know that you're designing us to be imaged as your own son, and we thank you, Lord, for that. We thank you for your patience, your mercy toward us. And we thank you, Lord, that uh, as we come before you today with your word in our hands, we are very, very blessed. And we are given an opportunity, a special opportunity, to be here to listen to what you would have us hear and do. So, Lord, may we take full opportunity of this time as we study through this. Keep our eyes on you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the last month or so, I've shown you in our study of Galatians 5, the power and the dangers of the flesh. I can't find a passage in the scripture where it recommends the flesh to be your friend, because it's not. Yet, as we very well know, the flesh is something we've become quite accustomed to, haven't we? It's here. And sometimes we have relied heavily upon it. By definition, I have explained that the flesh has this desire for us to use our wisdom, our own strength, our own will for our own glory. In contrast, I have shown that the flesh is operating in opposition to God. In character, we have witnessed that the flesh is desperate to do things its own way, even to the point of biting, devouring, consuming others. The manifestation of the flesh is clearly seen in the passages that are before us, but especially verse 19, 20, and 21, where the list is given of the deeds of the flesh. That's its character. Let me also add that the flesh leads to disaster. Actually, the word death is used in Scripture. I'm going to have you turn back to Romans chapter 8. Now, I know when I started our study that I said we were going to spend time in Galatians 5, and then when we were through there, we're going to Galatians 8, or Romans 8, and you're saying, well, we sure are in Romans 8 an awful lot. Who knows, I might be doing both studies at the same time. Uh, but both of them do, as you can clearly see, correspond beautifully together. 
So I'm going to ask you to set your bookmarks here, because we're going to be back several times into Romans chapter 8. But look at verse number 6. Look at these words concerning the flesh. For the mind set on the flesh is what? Death. Do you see that word? The mind set on the flesh is death, and the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Look at verse 7. But the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. And verse 8. And those who are of the flesh cannot please God. Three significant statements right there. The mindset on the flesh is death. That's its goal. That's where it will lead every single time. The mindset on the flesh is death. The mindset on the flesh is hostile to God. Does this voice sound like the battlefield again? It does not subject itself to the law of God. It's not even able to do so. And then he goes on to that last phrase, and the, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. There's no maybe in that last phrase. There's no wiggle room to say, well, you know, at least 75% of them can't please God. It cannot please God. Those who are in the flesh cannot. I find those verses to be alarming, don't you? They are significant verses for us to understand. So keep your bookmark there. But back in our Galatians passage, in our Galatians passage 5, verse 17, I'm working my way through this passage, and really I'll, I'll tell you that in, in the best that I, I'm able to communicate these things that we have on the page, if I can make the flesh as, unglamorous to you as possible. <laughs> I will try to. The world dresses it up with all the glitter and all the glow. It presents it as the ideal way to live and the way to act and the way to think. It does that. The Bible presents it as an odious fiend. It works contrary to God and it wants you to be contrary to God too. It sets its desire against the Spirit, verse 17 says. These are in opposition to one another, it says. And as we worked on this last week, we found that the nature of its activity is relentless. It does not stop. Oh, I wish it could. I wish it would. But it does not stop. Its desire is continuously against the Spirit. We've seen that in the sense that it is against it. There's a conflict in this word. There's, there's a face-to-face -face, uh, spiritual duel being represented in these words. So there is no compromise. Not between the flesh and the Spirit. There is no compromise. There is no cooperation. There, there are no taking of turns. There is no submission. We even saw that in Romans chapter number 8. It cannot submit itself to the law of God. There are no negotiations in the works. I heard this just this past week. Uh, A.W. Tozer in his writings said this. 
darkness and light can never be brought together by talk. Some things are not negotiable. So, do you know the struggle that we're studying here? Have you found these things that we have been studying to be convicting? Again, Tozer hits it right on the mark when he says this. Christianity is hard when we try to serve God in man's way instead of serving God in God's way. Know the struggle? Here's the good news. The good news in what we're doing here today. Rarely does anyone think of conviction as a good thing. Conviction reveals issues. Conviction reveals problems. Crime is that which is done against the proper order of things. The root word for conviction is convict. It reveals something, doesn't it? It reveals exactly where we are. And if there is conviction in us, then there is evidence here, and great evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. I'll tell you that on purpose, because the fact that we do struggle, we sometimes express the words of the Apostle Paul, O wretched man that I am. Perhaps uh, one who has verbalized that conflict, the greatest in writing in history, would be the man Martin Luther. This was his struggle. And he expressed it so well in so many occasions. But in his commentary on Galatians, one of the best uh, commentary I've read on any single book, his commentary on Galatians, he said this, We credit Paul's own words, wherein he plainly confesses that he is sold under sin, and that he is led captive of sin, and that he has a law in his members, warring against the law of his mind, and that in the flesh he serves the law of sin. Here the misguided scholars answers that he speaks as the person of the wicked. But the wicked do not complain about the rebellion of their flesh, any battle or any conflict, because sin mightily reigns in them. And here's the reality. If you feel no conviction as you approach God's Word, and you see what we're called to, if you sense no conviction, it doesn't mean a thing to you, it doesn't matter whatsoever. I have to say this in, in one word, or as simple as I can. Then you must not have the Holy Spirit. You must not have the Holy Spirit if these things do not convict you. Because His ministry is conviction. His ministry is judgment. His ministry is assurance. His ministry is growth. He will not quit until we're conformed to the image of Christ. He will oppose everything that is contrary to Christ. Do you know it? He will. That's what He does. And if these ministries are lacking in you, then you might very well be lacking Him. Romans 8, that passage I told you to hold there. Verse number 9, this is how it reads. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Him. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are 
the sons of God. That's how essential this is. And because we have the Spirit within us, the rest of Romans 8 would tell us, we groan. (laughs) We groan, and yes, that's true. We groan. Why? Because He is preparing us to be what we are supposed to be. And in verse number 23, he goes on to say, not only this, but we ourselves having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. We long for the change, don't we? When we stand before Him and we're set free of this flesh. Oh my. I wonder what it is like to step into heaven. You know, we write songs about such things. We have uh, uh, all kinds of writings that go on to express what that's going to be like. But folks, do you know what it might be like to step out of a sinful body and not have that issue again? I just can't even fathom it. There are days when I put on my heavy work boots. And I'll go out and I'll stomp all over the yard or something like that and spend a great number of hours out there. And you know your feet get sore and tired and, and you feel heavy and such. Then you come in, you take them off, and you put on your slippers. And all of a sudden your legs just fly up in the air when you try to walk because you're not used to it being without that weight. And if you're afraid, maybe you're going to fall over. It's just too much freedom. I wonder what heaven's going to be like. We step into glory and we're set free from this, this body of flesh, this pressure of sin, this, this constant, relentless assault on us to be set free. He says we groan for that day. We groan for that day. So, when the Holy Spirit's at work in you, and He's convicting you, it means He's shaping you. He's making you like our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's good news, folks. That's very assuring news. We see back in Galatians 5, the passage we want to look at, especially today, is that work of the Holy Spirit. It says, right in the middle of verse 17, And the Spirit against the flesh... These are in opposition to one and the other, so that you may not do the things you please. That little phrase in the New American Standard Version. And the spirit against the flesh. Now there's no verbs in that. It's borrowed from the earlier phrase. The desire of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. The English Standard Version does take the word and move it into the second half. But most of the translations we might have this morning just says something to the effect, in the spirit against the flesh. What is he doing? Well, the verb is desiring. The verb is desiring. It is the exact same verb used of the flesh. And this is why it kind of catches us a little off guard, because when we see the desire of the flesh, we pull up that little word and we see... Well, at least some of us see epithumia. And the word is, in Greek, a violent, intense craving. It is a a very powerful matter. In fact, I don't even know one stronger than this. 
an intensified, gotta have it kind of attitude. Uh, an action that we typically call lust. And in our good old biblical conservative ways, we say, well, you can't use that word with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> lust doesn't seem to match, does it? But that is the word. And it's not used in the sense of something evil. It's used in the sense of the intensity whereby He is in operation in your life. The intensity that He wants what He desires in you so strongly. You can not pick a stronger word for it. This is a perfect word for it to describe what He is doing. Matter of fact, because we used it in the nature of the flesh, we're going to use the same uh, concepts in the nature of the Spirit's work here. He is relentless. It's the same word. It's the same uh, continuous, ongoing, if you will, kind of activity. He is relentless in what He is seeking to produce in you. Now, I say that not only because it's grammatically correct, but also it's theologically correct. We often misrepresent the desire of the Holy Spirit in us. Let me tell you how we do that. We often think that His ministry comes in spurts. As if He's quite busy today. But you know, He's got so many other people to be working on too. And he's going to get busy with them, you know. And, and some days he finds us in a rather bad mood. So he just says, well, I'm going to skip them today. Let them calm down a bit. I'll be back. Uh, we sometimes think that, well, we're so occupied today. Uh, why don't you make an appointment and come back and work on me? You know, that's like when you call the repairman and he says, you sometime next week I'll fix your car. That's somehow the way we think of him, that he works in spurts. He comes and he goes and, and he does a little bit here and a little bit there. Of course, if you think that way, then you know that Sunday is his biggest work day, right? Because he's busy on Sunday, especially if you're inside a sanctuary. That's where he works the hardest, of course. And if the preacher, of course, is preaching what he ought to, then that's where he works the best. You see... Sometimes we have this mentality about our Holy Spirit, that He comes, and He goes, and it goes and leaves you alone for a day or two, and then He comes back. Sometimes He surprises you when you're not expecting it, but there He is all of a sudden, and He's back to work again. We have that conception. Doesn't Scripture tell us that He indwells in us? Have you ever seen such a verse? If you haven't, you will now. Let's turn to it. John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Jesus taught some essential things about the Holy Spirit in John 14, 15, and 16 and 17. But here, John 14, we'll start verse 16 and verse 17. This is what he said. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper. This is the Holy Spirit. A helper that he may be with you only on Sundays in the sanctuary when the pastor is preaching. Did you see that? No. He will be with you when? 
forever. Mark that word in your thinking. If not, underline it right there so you see it. He doesn't mean occasionally, does he? He said forever. He says, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. You see it? And how long is he with you and in you? Forever. All right. We've got that well established here. Let's look at verse 26. Maybe even on the same page for you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to you your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now he's talking specifically to his disciples, yes. But the Holy Spirit is our teacher. And how many times has he reminded you of something? And many times at the very right moment when you needed to remember. I'm not talking about what was that twelfth item on my grocery list. Talking about, I'm in this world, and here's this temptation, and, and it's attractive, and here I am. I'm starting to head that way, and all of a sudden you get Scripture in your mind. Where did that come from? Who is reminding us of the things that we ought to know? It's our Holy Spirit. That's His job. Well, let me show you another passage. John 15, verse 26. This is 26 and 27. I like it how it keeps saying this. When the Helper comes, when the Helper comes, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will testify about Me. And you will testify also because you have been with Me from the beginning. What is the Holy Spirit doing? He's always pointing the finger to Christ. He testifies of Christ. He aims you at Christ. He teaches you about Christ. That's what he does. So we jump from there to chapter 16. And this is a longer section, but uh, starting in verse number 7, and he goes through verse 14 with this phrase. But behold, or but because I have said these things. No, verse 7. But I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears... He will speak and He will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take of Mine and will disclose it to you. You know, that's an active ministry. It's a continuous ministry. He will do this. He will do this. He will do this. All the way through, we're seeing the the outline of His work. But I started with this phrase, He is relentless at it. This is not a Sunday morning in the sanctuary when the preacher is speaking only experience here. The Holy Spirit is always doing this. Because He is always with you. He will not stop. He will not stop. He doesn't take time off. He doesn't look at the week as five days of work and two days of rest. 
He's not limited to Sundays only. And since He is in you folks, that means He goes with you where you go. He's not boxed into a sanctuary. You take Him with you where you go. You go to work, He goes with you. You go anywhere, He goes with you. What you see is what He sees. What you do, He's there. What you hear, He hears. What you think, He knows. What you say, He knows. He even knows what you want to say. In case you're wondering, He is God. And Scripture already defines that about our God, does it not? Where can we go away from His presence? Nowhere. The Holy Spirit is with you. That's a reminder, but that's a very important point to make here. For sometimes we think it's the flesh that has the advantage. We think it's the flesh that is stronger, because that's what we feel the most, right? We think it's the flesh that's winning this battle that we're looking at here. We see the desire of the flesh as strong as it is, but now look at the Holy Spirit as strong as that is. He will not compromise with the flesh. He will not cooperate with the flesh. He will not negotiate with the flesh. Don't try to make a deal with them. To say, oh, you know, if you just let me do this for a little while, then, you know, I'll, I'll make up for it. Oh, no. Oh, no. He set his desire against that flesh all the time. Every time. Everywhere. That is what he does. He's not asking in any way for a compromise in this situation. Because there is no submission on his part. He will never submit to your flesh. He will not. You say, well, how do I know? Well, listen to this. I, had, I just thought this through the other day and I said, well, you know, I want to present this accurately. And this is what I have to tell you. There's a distinction here on this page, verse, in verse 17. There's a distinction. The flesh is a thing. It's a thing. It's a, maybe a system, maybe a force. It's, a, it's the nature of this world. It's an evil mentality. It is that which pulls us away from God. It's that which is around us. It is not immortal. The flesh is strong, but is not all-powerful. The flesh is prevalent, but it is not everywhere. The flesh is complicated, yes, and intellectually it goes beyond us, yes, but it's not all-knowing, because the flesh is not God. It wants to be, but it is not. The Holy Spirit is God. He is a person, He has intellect, He has emotion, He has will, and he will see his will at work in us. In reality, since the, the, we, we notice the power of the flesh, sometimes we conclude that it's greater. So it can't be competed against. But the flesh cannot compete with God. Understand? The flesh cannot compete with God. The character of the Holy Spirit is that He is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. 
The flesh is not. The conflict then, this is a simple thing, but listen. The conflict then does not represent equal combatants. One is a limited thing. The other is the unlimited God. And he has an incredible desire. He is constantly at work. He is producing his will. Here's the fact. You're outnumbered. I told you that. But let me show you. Your Romans 8 passage. Still got your bookmark? That's to your advantage right now. Because when you look at Romans 8, verse number 29, you will see the will of the Father. The will of the Father. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, that He would be firstborn among many brethren. In my Bible, it's underlined right there. He predestined to become formed to the image of His Son. That's what He's doing in you and me. The Father's will is that you are shaped into the image of His Son. Matter of fact, he said it so strongly, he predestined it. And if that word makes you nervous, that's okay. It doesn't change the fact. He's done that. That's what he predestined for us. So that's his will. Now let me ask you something. You can answer this pretty simplistically. Do you think he's going to get it? Say, well, I don't know. Don't say that. Everything he predestines, he does. That's him. That's his character. He will not fail. All right? He will not fail. Now, what about the son? Does he have a will? I'll show you. Now you've got to go to a new book, Philippians. Chapter number 3, Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. Here's the son at work producing his will. Philippians three twenty and 21. For our citizenship is in heaven, which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will, watch this, this is what the Savior will do, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by the exertion of the power that He has even to subject all things to himself. Now that adds a couple of questions that pastors got to ask. Is this will the same that the Father had just said? It's conforming you to the image of the Son, right? Is the Son active in that will? Is that his will too? Yes. And is he able to do it? Yes, he is. Look at this. He, he shows that he can do it by the exertion of the power he has to subject all things to himself. Now, unless you're something unique here, you fall into category number uh, three here at the end of the verse, which says, you are among those things he subjects. <laughs> What's not subjected to him? You? So is he going to get his will done? Okay, you're sure of that? So, so far it's two against you. If you're fighting the will of God, you're fighting the will of the Son as well. Now, one more to show you. Or Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians chapter 3. Now, there's a book we need to dust off every now and then. Second Corinthians. 
Second, make sure you got the two in front of it. Chapter 3, verse 18. Well, I, I like verse 17, so I'm going to launch from there. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. What is the Spirit's work and will right here? What's He doing for you? Transforming you into the image of Christ. So the fathers predestined it, and it will be done. You said so. The Son has worked toward that, and that's what He's doing, and you said so. He will succeed. The Holy Spirit then is, guess what? Doing the same thing. Do they share in the same will? And you say, "Uh uh-oh. I am now outnumbered by all three members of the Trinity. And they all three are doing the same work to transform me into the image of Christ. You say, okay, is that it? Is that all I need to see? No, one more. One more. You say, oh, oh no, what's this? Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, start with verse number 11. We'll work our way until uh, we're convinced. Ephesians 4.11, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists. We don't have those folks in our congregation. Some as pastors and teachers. Oh, we got some of those. What do we do? For the equipping of the saints. Okay. For the work of service. Yeah. To the building up of the body of Christ. That's super. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Guess what our aim is here at this church? What is our aim of ministry? What is our aim of service? That every single one of us conform to the image of Christ. That's the Father's will, that's the Son's work, that's the Holy Spirit at work in you. And then he says, and let's give them the church to surround them. Put them right in the heart of where I'm doing this work. The church is here for that purpose. That you might grow into the image of Christ. That you might grow into the image of Christ. He has deployed His church to help also in the same process that He is doing Himself. Our goal is to be like Him. And we will be done when we stand before His throne someday. And we shall see Him. Oh, what a great word that is in John. First John chapter 3. Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. And we haven't yet seen what we shall be. But we know that when we see Him, we shall be like Him. For we shall see Him as He is. There's your guarantee, folks. God's plan will work. And that's why I bring to you this morning, this passage... When I say the Holy Spirit's desire is against the flesh, His desire is making you like Christ. The flesh will never do that. But the Spirit will. And He's relentless. And He will win. Because He's God, and the flesh is not. You see? You see it? 
this is the picture that we have set before us. And I think these words and these figures and all that we set before you in this way are very important for us as believers to understand what's going on, what's this conflict, what's this battle that we're in. Our response generally when we hear these things are to say, well, we better get busy then. Let's get busy. Uh, uh, but the pastor keeps saying you can't use your own strength. You can't use your, your own wisdom. can't use your own will. He's telling us not to do that. So now what do we do? It's called being submissive to the Spirit. Being submissive to the Spirit. Are we not called to be filled with the Holy Spirit? You know, He's in you. You say, well, isn't that feeling enough? No. He wants to control. That's the nature of the word. To be filled is to be controlled. It's what dominates you. If you wanted a, a good test, I had this given to me when I was in uh, Bible college. As a matter of fact, it was my wife who wrote it on a little note and stuck it in my Bible. And I don't know if that was meant to convict me or not. But uh, she said in that little note, whatever you're filled with, will spill out when you're bumped. I said, hmm. Now there's a test for you. There's a test to see what's in you. But you say, well, okay, I've got to be submissive to the Spirit. How many times have we said that I'm going to try this and I'm going to make it better? How many times have we made that vow, that commitment? I'm going to do it better. I'm going to, from now on, I'm going to do it better. That's the story of Martin Luther. That's what his vow was over and over. And he came to conclude this. I shall not be able, with all my vows and all my good deeds, to stand before him. Because, as Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who can stand? Who can stand? And in Romans chapter 8, it says that the, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, and yes it is, because it's not able to do it. It's not able to make you right before God. The law can't do that. I, I had a serious moment while I was in college. I was contemplating for some time going into behavioral science. Well, I kind of did that anyway. Uh, but the philosophical realm, the, the uh, clinical realm of behavioral science... Uh, Always fascinated me to see mice running through mazes and dogs salivating when you ring a bell and stuff like that. It was always interesting little things that they did to show you that you can train behavior. That was the basic idea. You can make behavior work by ringing a bell. A dog thinks it's supper time or something like that. Christians, how many times do we do that? We think that rules are going to make us better. We think that ringing a bell is going to make me spiritual. We, 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 we set up these little systems in our lives to say, now I could do it better, now I could do it better, now I could do it better. The fact is this, as that verse just said, the law could not do it. It was weak. Impossible. It's of the flesh. It cannot. See, the, the law does not instill behavior. It controls behavior. The law gives consequences. And the rest of the verse that Paul wrote there, he says, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did by sending his Son to be a, in the likeness of sinful flesh, offering himself for the sin that he condemned in the flesh. 
Here's the difference. If you in any way insert the flesh in your system to make you more spiritual, you have gone exactly against what he's designed. Because this is the way Jesus said it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Is that strong enough? Is that strong enough for us? I'm sure the Father can say the same thing. And I'm confident the Holy Spirit would say the same thing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. The passage we're called to says, Walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. Walk by the Spirit. And to do that, that means we have to obey Him. We have to trust His leadership. We have to be in fellowship with Him. We have to seek His direction. We have to know how He works. And that's what Pastor Bob's here for, to help you understand it. It's to have confidence in what He's doing. In what He's doing. You say, yeah, but that's a tough world. I know it. The flesh is pretty intense, isn't it? Do you not know that your ally is God Himself? How often the Old Testament saints struggled with that. They go into battle thinking, hey, let's figure out how we can get God down here to help us. Once they even carried the ark in there. We got God! They carried the ark into the battle scene. Everyone thought, oh no, God just came. It's kind of funny how we lose sight of things. We just read that He's with us. (laughs) And I heard it this morning once already, but I'll remind us because we've heard it again. Greater is He that is in you than he that is in the world. Don't give the flesh credit as if it's God. The Holy Spirit is God. And he's the one who lives in you. He's the one at work in you. Submit to him. That's how you walk with him. Alright, now let's go out and practice. Heavenly Father, these words sit before us Every single one of us are held by them. Thank you, Lord, that through Jesus Christ we have a new relationship with you. We call you our Father. We are your sons. We belong to you. But you didn't just leave us at that. You also gave us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to be with us forever. He testifies today that we are children of God. That's his work. He convicts us today, and boy, we felt it again. He shows us again to trust Him because He is God. And what His will is will be accomplished. And Lord, I really enjoy being part of this this process of what You're doing. I wish I were more submissive. I wish I was more observant in what was going on. I wish I had depended less upon the flesh. But that's why You're here to work in our lives. And as each of us come before you today, it's not that we're going to do something in a manner of behavior or things or or anything of that sort to make things better, but we are going to submit ourselves to the Holy Spirit. That's where we start. That's what we must do. So Lord, you know every heart in this room. You know the ones that have been fighting you all morning. The ones who have been at war with you all week. The ones that, because of attitudes, because of actions, they've been contrary to fellowship with you. And you're so patient, you're so merciful, and yet you're at work. And I pray, Lord, if there's anything that stands between you and us, that you would make it revealed to us that we might remove that, that we might walk in 
fullness of fellowship with you. Do your work in our hearts, dear Lord. This is the only way that we can walk in the Spirit, is to be with the Spirit in fellowship. So do your work in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.